Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 214. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avino Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, at the time of this recording, we're in the middle of the Passover season, as is represented by the counting of the Omer from the Passover to the Pentecost. And it's so important that we realize that Yeshua is our Passover lamb. His blood was poured out as a sacrifice so that we could be reconciled to the Father and the wrath of God would be spared upon us, just like in the Exodus Passover that we read about in the book of Exodus itself. And yet, with the unleavened bread right after that, and then with the Omer Rishit, or first sheaf, first fruits, right on the heels of that, we're now brought into this place where we are looking forward to the next great festival on the list, which is Pentecost. The lesson is timeless. From Passover to Pentecost, it's all about being set free by the blood of Messiah, only to be filled with the spirit of Messiah at Shavuot, Pentecost. So thank you for these lessons, Lord. Help us to continue to draw close to you in spirit and in truth, and give us a heart to want to do your will. Thank you for everyone who is participating with me during these live studies, during these YouTube videos and podcasts. A special blessing upon them. Uh, continue to raise us up and strengthen us, and we'll give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Well, let's jump right into another study on eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi. Looking at my screen, we've already worked our way through topic 1, 2, 3, and 4, and we're poised on topic 5, Book of Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel. I'm going to try and finish the overview of Daniel Daniel 70 weeks, which we're reading through Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27, so that we can begin to deal with the specific last final week, otherwise known as the 70th week of Daniel. Maybe we'll hit that starting next week, but I believe we can finish the overview first. When I say overview, what I mean is just those four verses. So let me read those four verses for you. Let's scroll back up a little bit. There we go. This is the NASB version of the Bible, and let me read these four verses for you, and then we'll jump into what I have to say. NASB reads this way, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Verse 26, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And then the final Pasuk, verse 27, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay, so what we've been doing is working our way through an understanding of the most basic of what I like to refer to as the um, 
the popular view of these passages, the my, what we might call the traditional Christian perspective, I am aware that there are differing translations that yield different understandings. And so I don't want to make this very complicated, but I do want to make you aware of the different translations and just briefly give me, let me see if I can hit this in five minutes at the most and make you aware of the fact of just a translation difference with different punctuation will cause you to make this passage about Jesus or there's a way to take him out of the picture altogether and produce an entirely kind of radical different way of looking at this. Now, I've talked in the past about the differences between the interpretive views of end-time prophecy. We already know there's at least four different views of the book of Revelation and end-time prophecy. We've got the preterist view, the idealist view, the historicist view, and the futurist view. And I myself, as a Bible teacher, hold to the futurist perspective. That is to say, most of the end-time prophecies, for instance, in the book of Revelation, are specifically for the future with an understanding that much of what has already happened in the past is past history. The complete kind of polar opposite of my perspective futurist would be the perspective that I do not hold to, but a perspective that I'm making aware of of from time and time uh, time and time again, which is the preterist view. Preterist view, at least in its extreme forms, there's two versions. There's preterist and then there's there's full preterist and there's partial preterist. And in the extreme version, the full preterist, or we could call it hyper preterist, takes the books, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and the, the prophecies that we're reading about, and it puts everything into the past, particularly right around 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed and, you know, 70 AD and then 130s when the Jewish wars broke out and finally Rome just plowed Jerusalem under, kicked all the Jews out. So what the Preterist view does is it says there's really nothing left in the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel here to look forward to. And I reject that view on a number of for a number of reasons. Even partial preterism has a number of disturbing details that I just can't really go on get on board with. Having said that, however, I do recognize that some of what Daniel is prophesying about is past history and what some some of what the book of Revelation talks about tells us, informs us from past historical events as well. So I do, do believe there's this kind of near-far aspect to end-time prophecy. We've seen the little chart that I keep putting on the screen. I'm not going to do it tonight for you, but it's a little prophetic, what we call telescoping, where a prophet is looking at an event that God tells him about in the spirit, and to the prophet, it looks like perhaps one mountain peak. But in reality, it's two mountain peaks separated by a gap between the mountain peaks. And the near mountain peak, the one closest to the prophet, is what he really sees kind of happening near to him. But in reality, there might be something far that God is implying by the second mountain peak. So there's a telescoping effect going on that the prophet may or may not be aware of. And so we get one prophecy, but yet there are two occurrences, one near to the prophet and a far fulfillment farther away into the future. And sometimes it's a partial fulfillment close to the prophet and a final fulfillment. So it's kind of cut in half in the sense that it's partially fulfilled in in some ways. And then it awaits a future final full fulfillment. And other times it's just a repeat of almost everything, just a type and shadow effect, right? Kind of like the way Yeshua's effect of dying on the cross and reconciling us to God through his 
sacrifice was typified in the Old Testament by the sacrifices of the animals themselves. So we see that is not really so much as a partial fulfillment, more as so much as we would describe it as a shadow fulfillment. So a shadow and then the reality. So we have some of that going on in the prophecies as well. So having said that, when we're looking at the book of Daniel right now, I want to make you aware of the fact that the two opposing views of preterism and futurism, they're, they're kind of the, like the two polar opposites. The historicist view and idealist view, they kind of work together with one another. They don't really cancel each other out. But the preterism view and the, and the futurist view, they're kind of on the, on the polar opposites, the extremes of, of, or I shouldn't say extremes, but they're, they're really almost opposing each other when, when they meet on the table. And so the book of Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 let me scroll down to that one again this is a verse that really kind of sets the tone for either a preterist perspective or a futurist and so let me read daniel 9 25 out of some different versions real quick and just show you what is driving some of the interpretations or driving some of the perspectives based on interpretation real quick if you look at the screen right now the niv version has this punctuation in the English, which if you remember from the original Hebrew, there aren't, there's really no punctuation except what is driven by either context or by the Masoretic tradition who added little dots and dashes underneath all of the pieces of the original consonants. Let me just show you the Hebrew real quick so you guys can follow along. So you see I've got verse 25 pulled up in the Hebrew right here. And you see a bunch of little dots and dashes after the letters or after the consonants but those dots and dashes were added in the fourth century if i remember after the common era so fourth century AD, if i remember and that means the original scroll that daniel wrote or the, the original writing that daniel put together even the original scrolls that were accessible to the jewish people and the first century followers yeshua himself included all of those people had access to scrolls that didn't have any dots or dashes so the traditions that were passed along in Judaism as to where the what we might consider the breaks in punctuation show up is a matter of something that we're more accustomed to looking at with all of our commas and semicolons and colons more than what they were looking at so they didn't even have verse breaks i mean we've got verse 25 in our english renderings but they didn't even have the verse breaks so all of these things were added later right verse breaks chapter breaks paragraph breaks well, maybe not paragraph breaks. Those are put in by the Masoretes as well. But germane to our study are the punctuation marks. So look at Daniel 9.25 specifically. And the only punctuation mark I want you to really, really zero in on is the one after the phrase, the ruler, uh, um, let's see, let me just read it this way. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the anointed one, the ruler, comes there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens period it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench but in times of trouble so in the phrase right here let me just highlight it for you let's see from time up there will be okay this clause right here there will be seven sevens comma and 62 sevens so in the niv version right away because of the comma after the word sevens and the period after the word after the second sevens we see that basically the niv is informing us that the events that it just described or i.e the from the time frame of the going out to restore and rebuild 
until so there's those are the beginning and ending markers until the anointed one the ruler comes there will be this amount of time that passes by seven sevens and 62 sevens we've already established that these sevens are heptads units of seven but by context they imply years okay so what we're seeing here in the niv version is that there will be seven plus 62 even though it's broken up into a series of a clump of sevens and then a clump of 62 nevertheless we still have a starting and an ending point that equals 69 sevens now when we when we translate this into the 70 sevens we end up with 483 years so what we're seeing is that according to the niv version this anointed one who shows up shows up at the end of the 69 um, yeah at the end of the 483 years after the 69 sevens you guys are seeing that, right? And it's based on a simple addition of commas and periods in the English version. So that's going to drive our translation questions. Same thing in L NLT. We have the exact same feature going on, basically. Let me just highlight them. There will be, let's see, it's, I mean, it, they put the 77s seven and 627s a little higher up into the... Um, translation but it's the same concept seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass so they are also agreeing that it's going to be 483 years from the beginning of the decree to the to when the messiah shows up and does something significant 60 uh, uh, 69 sevens or 483 years but watch what happens when we start to get to a version known as the ESV, the version I was fond of using for the longest time, but I've now switched over to NASB. Let me read this one. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build, build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, so still starting and ending, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, period. And then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat. Notice that in their translation, they put a period after the first seven weeks, and then there's a break for a new sentence. Then for 62 weeks, it should be built again. It almost implies here, and I think it does, that the anointed one is going to show up after the seven-week period and not after the 69-week period, or after the first seven, seven sevens, and not after the additional 62 sevens. So it moves up the arrival of the Messiah by a good 62 weeks or 62 sevens or the 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 time period between the sep first seven and the second i.e the, the 483 years so what are we to make of the esv well we'll have to look at that here in a, in a bit but other than that the berean standard follows the traditional reading it puts the seven weeks and the 62 weeks together kjv does the same thing it puts the seven weeks and the 62 weeks together using the using the what we call the periods and the commas, right? So the punctuation, it puts them together. New King James, same thing. NESB does the same thing. All versions of the NESB. The Legacy Standard has the same thing. Puts When I say the same thing, meaning the traditional reading in Christianity seems to be the majority reading, the traditional. Amplified puts the two together. I'm going through these somewhat quickly because you can see them on your screen. Christian Standard also says there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and then it puts a period. So it, it's, 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 none of them are saying that there isn't a seven year and then a 62 years. They're all recognizing that there are clumps or groups 
like I'm going to show you in a graphic here on the screen here in a moment. But notice they're all recognizing that the starting of these of uh, 490 years, the 70 weeks of Daniel, has a, de has a definite starting point, but there's something significant that takes place after the first 483 years, i.e. the 7 plus the 62. So Holman Christen, Christian, same thing. It talks about things that'll happen. And the impact is when does this Messiah figure show up? American Standard Version has a similar Aramaic Bible in plain English. It has the same thing. In fact, I like it. it says the Messiah, the King, uh, the 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 not, the departure of the Word to return to build Jerusalem and to the coming of the Messiah, the King, is seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. Messiah, the King, you like that? Look at Brenton's Septuagint translation. Right, Brenton translated the Septuagint from the Greek, not from the Hebrew. So we have now an English translation, and it also says. And thou shalt know and understand that from the going forth of the command to for the answer and for the building of Jerusalem unto Christ the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Again, using the punctuation, we have there shall be seven weeks, comma, and 62 weeks, semicolon. It also lumps those two together, allowing for Christ to show up at the end of the 483 period, as opposed to showing up at the end of the 49-year period, the first set of sevens. Contemporary English version, seven weeks and another 62 weeks. Dewey Rames, seven weeks and 62 weeks. English revised version, this one starts to get a little different, like the uh, ESV earlier. It says, Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the anointed one, the prince shall be seven weeks full colon, and three score in two weeks, it shall be built again, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure if they exactly agree with where the Messiah is going to show up, but at least their translation seems to lend support for what I'm kind of driving at right now. God's Word translation, seven time periods and 62 sets of seven, so it puts the two together again. Uh, Good News translation, same thing, puts it together. International Standard, again, uh, puts all of them together. We say that it says there will be seven weeks and 62. JPS Tanakh, however, which of course is put out by the Jewish community, they have no allegiance to Jesus as the Messiah. They have no recognition that Messiah is going to show up after a certain time period within the prophecy of Daniel. They strip Jesus out of the prophecy, and in so doing, their 100-year-old version of the Bible reads, Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem unto an anointed one, a prince, shall be seven weeks, semicolon, and for three score and two weeks it shall be built again with broad place and broad moat, but in troublous times. Notice again, their arrival of this anointed person, this prince, shows up after the seven-week period, which if you, when we look at a time chart, which I think I've got one pulled up on my screen here in a moment, we're going to see that it's impossible to put Jesus into the time frame if it's as early as after the first seven set of sevens, or after 49 years from the issuing of the decree. It's much too early. It's still in the BC area of time as to you know to allow for it to be Jesus, and that's the point I'm really driving at. So I don't need to look through the rest of these. You, you get the idea. Most of the versions in in your English Christian translations are going to be similar to the NASB that I'm used to reading. So I'll just kind of park it out there. But there is there are a few, like the ESV, that have some odd translations that seem to 
allow for taking Jesus out of the picture or which is, which is why I'm wondering why would the ESV do that or putting Jesus arrival on the scene much too early for him to be the one that we know to be the historical Jesus Christ. Okay, having said that, there's another issue that I have to deal with constantly as I'm doing end-time studies, and this is this issue known as confirmation bias. I've got this little graphic pulled up on the screen, and it reads like this. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, and remember information that confirms our beliefs. We've got these two circles drawn on the screen. And over on the left side, we've got an arrow pointing to the area of what we discredit and ignore, in the facts and evidence so there's amount of things that we personally everybody has a certain amount of confirmation bias but we're trying to ascertain what amount of this is relevant to our bible study when we got facts and evidence there's amount that we discredit and ignore maybe without even realizing it and there's a whole nother circle called our beliefs and we've got this little arrow on the far right that says what we want to be true based on our own personal understanding our personal experience our own personal life lessons that we've learned through after coming to god etc things like that but notice that little almond slice in the middle when the two uh circles overlap what well, this is a, a classic venn diagram v like victory e-n-n venn diagram what we have in that almond slice right in the middle is what we look for and recall and notice it is in contrast to the larger sections on either the left or the right so we kind of have this bias, which is why it's called confirmation bias, where we're not aware of some blindnesses where we might be discrediting facts and evidence and also largely not really always holding on to other parts of our belief. We just kind of focus on what we look for and what we recall in regards to the, the facts and evidence that line up with our beliefs. We kind of ignore the rest. It's, it's almost like we have a new story that's 100% factually true, and yet, when we read the news story based on our own beliefs and what we want to be true about the news story, we only actually look for and recall and remember, let's say, 10 or 20% of the news story. We ignore the other 80 or 90%. That's kind of what's going on. The tip down at the bottom says, confirmation bias can give us a false sense of knowledge. Instead, try to prove yourself wrong that's a way to kind of get out of confirmation bias so how is this relevant to our study on end time prophecy well it's as simple as this many people when they read through prophecy like end time prophecy such as the book of daniel we're reading through and the book of revelation which we're going to get to many people accuse christians of having confirmation bias where they read an old testament prophecy and then they are aware of the new testament writings as well as history gone by first century history, and instead of simply reading through the Old Testament and mining it for whatever truths are there without the New Testament, they read the Old Testament with a view of what has already happened in the New Testament and in history, etc., etc. In other words, we don't really truly see the historical Old Testament. We only see what we know the New Testament confirms about the Old Testament. So on the one hand, there's some danger there because we don't want to fall into the trap of confirmation bias but on the other hand i'm actually here to tell you that because of the dynamic of the way the bible works where the new testament writings actually do confirm old testament truths and prophecy it's safe to practice what i might label label as biblical confirmation bias meaning god spoke in progressive fashion when he gave his word to us 
And therefore, because of the many truths that were either partially given in the Old Testament or sometimes outright hidden in mystery, we then end up with a warrant for reading through our Bibles, at least today we do, reading through our Bibles with the perspective that the New Testament is the final and complete picture and the fullest revelation of everything that we've read in the Old Testament. And that forms a biblical and healthy version of confirmation bias that we actually do want to embrace. So I understand this graphic that we're seeing represents in what we might call in the traditional classic sense of the word of like news today if we if we take the bible out of this conversation and god's word then confirmation bias can work against you your average human it can can lead you like it says down at the bottom it can give you a false sense of knowledge but when we're talking about the bible you don't want to leave out what the new testament adds to the discussion you definitely want the new testament to always inform you on the final answer to whatever you're studying in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And so don't be afraid of saying, well, I read the Old Testament. I didn't quite fully understand what's going on. Let me scan the New Testament and see if there's something that would inform me. That's what you want to do. You want the latter part of the Bible or the latter parts of, of any part of scripture to inform you of the earlier parts because of the dynamic of, I can use two analogies. We can use, use the dynamic of progressive revelation which the Word of God is surely laid out in that fashion. Or we can use the example of mystery, where God took truths in the Tanakh and he hid them and veiled them. doesn't mean they were mysterious and could never be understood. That's not the way biblical mystery works. Rather, mystery works where God hid a veil, hid a truth in the Old Testament, and then revealed it in the New Testament. Okay, so having said all that, let's jump into Daniel's study and see if we can finish this out this part tonight so we can next week begin to look directly at the 70th week. So in Daniel's 70 weeks, we already ascertained that the weeks are really given to us in the context of the Hebraic mindset of the Shemitah Sabbath year and the Yovel Jubilee 50, 50 years. And we can see this relationship on this little chart here. Each week in Hebraic thinking, at least according to the context, is equal to one year in the Shemitah sabbatical years. And when we add seven of those years up, we end up with a Shemitah, so that the seventh year ends up being a week of rest, a Sabbath year. This is given to us in Leviticus chapter 25, in case you want to go back and do your own homework, or just watch my last week's study, episode number 214. Nevertheless, when we take a, a Sabbath year of one year, and it's 360 days, not 365 days like we have today. A Hebrew year would have been 360. We take seven of those and we designate those as one week. Well, then when we count seven of them, then we end up with seven years as a Shemitah year. And then when we end up, when we count seven times seven of those, we end up with 49 years, which equals the 50th, the, the, the blueprint for the next year over being the ju Jubilee. See that little red square down in there at the bottom? The Yovel is the 50th year, which starts the counting over again. So that's kind of the model that helps us and informs us that when Daniel was given this prophecy of, set 400 and, of 70 weeks times 7, he's working from the mindset of years of weeks, not literal seven-day weeks. That simply wouldn't allow for all the events that take place in the prophecy to, to transpire if it were literal weeks of days. 
In fact, in the very next chapter, Daniel chapter 10, he talks about how that he was fasting for a certain amount of weeks of days. So if he wanted to indicate weeks of days, he probably could have told us and used the, the Hebrew that indicates not just the word Shavua for seven, the heptad, but in chapter 10, he also uses the word for day, you know, Yamim or Yom. So I don't think Daniel uh, was wanting us to know that these were literal weekdays. He didn't even use the word day there. He just uses the word 70 times sevens. Okay, let's look at this prophecy. Just again, as an overview, a few charts that I've been working from. If we put the degree, the decree at 444 as the starting point, we can see that three-section breakdown that I mentioned earlier, seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then one week after this gap, which I believe is 100% accurate and necessary for our total understanding. There absolutely was the gap there. Also, we can notice from this particular chart that the Messiah shows up after the 483 years of 360 days, or after the 7 plus the 62, i.e. after the 69. Remember, the Jewish perspective is that this anointed one would show up only after the 7 weeks, which effectively makes it impossible, impossible for it to be Yeshua. Another chart here has a similar look as the one we just looked at in black and white 70 weeks of daniel similar starting point 445 444 something like that and then it's got the breakdown of the 7 times 7 plus the 62 times 7 followed by the church age gap and then then we bring back in the final seven years and then this chart shows the kingdom age of a thousand years the millennium followed by the new heaven and earth as well if we look at brother alan parr's classic chart that i've been using this is a different starting point. It has 440, 457 as the starting, which puts it 12 years earlier than the 444. But there's not a lot of difference between this chart of Brother Parr and the chart earlier where you start at the 445 that, or 444 that most Christians do. Personally, I think Brother Parr's chart is also accurate. In other words, I could be on, I'm on board with either the, the, 457 or the 444 because the difference is only 12 years as opposed to those who might start the counting much much earlier in fact uh let's see do i even have that other chart showed up mm, i decided i didn't bring uh, decided not to bring that other chart in here's a final outline type looking chart from pastor mike winger great youtuber by the way i highly recommend him and he shows the general timeline of the prophecy. He doesn't say when it starts, but I believe he's a 444 starting point type of teacher like I myself am. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 444 or 457, one of those two. And But he's got the same kind of outline of the events. And so I just wanted you to see that this is the, what we might call the popular Christian view or the historic classic dispensationalist perspective. It's a pre-millennial perspective, etc. And then lastly, before I jump into the commentary, we had Daniel's 70th week as seen through the lens of the preterist. This is a chart that I don't embrace, although it does show the breakdown of the seven, the threefold breakdown of the seven weeks, followed by the 62 weeks, followed by the one week. The big difference here, if you notice in the time running below those, is that the starting point is 455, so it's like Brother Alan Parr's chart. So that's that's I'm fine with that. Again, 455 or 444. I'm not going to uh, follow my sword for either date, you know, one versus the other. I think they're both very, very 
close. So, you know, in other words, I think there's a little bit of fudge room based on our lack of understanding of what's going on. It could be this one, could be that one, but but either one, I'm not I'm not going to split hairs and disfellowship over you if you with you if you hold to a 450 if you hold to the kind of the older earlier date and i hold to the one that's 12 years newer so when we look at this chart this is a preterist perspective and if you look at the dates running along the bottom you'll see that what they do is they do a few things number one they take out the gap and in so effectively doing they smash everything by way of fulfillment into the first century right uh, Messiah arrives, Messiah is cut off, and the end of the 70 weeks is around 36 AD. Again, I reject that view. However, I recognize that there's a partial fulfillment that preterism isn't calling partial. That's where I differ with them. They are calling it total fulfillment. Even partial preterism calls it complete fulfillment. But there's a near-far aspect or partial fulfillment that I would say a futurist would agree with that some of what took place in Daniel's prophecy did take place in the first century. It's not all future. Part of it is history, and now part of it is still future. So let's jump into Pastor David Guzik's commentary. We left off last week with verse 25. Now, again, we've already we're now now already aware that based on which translation you read, you're either going to favor a preterist approach where everything's taking place in 70 AD, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in the 130s, right, the, the Jewish wars, or you're going to take a perspective like I do, futurist or something like that, that allows for much of Daniel to, in other words, the 70th week, to still be in the future like I do. Of course, again, the historicists and the idealists, they take different perspectives where everything's kind of drawn out, uh, strewn out a long history in this kind of lesson fashion, ideally, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to get into those particular details. Right now, for my study, I just want you to compare and contrast the preterist view plus the versus the futurist view, because those are the two that have the most impact on your um, study if you take one view versus the other. In other words, they're, they're two of the more prominent competing views. The historicist and the idealist view aren't as prominent, at least as I can tell. Let's read down through Daniel chapter, uh, Daniel Daniel's commentary, or uh, Pastor Guzik's commentary to the book of Daniel to these particular four verses. We already looked at verse 24. Go back and listen last week to last week's recording and catch that. Let's pick up now the reading in verse 25. Point number three, the course and dividing of the 70 weeks. So here's what we got. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, comma, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, semicolon, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So right away we see that Pastor Guzik is saying that he believes the classic traditional interpretation is that the seven weeks and the 62 weeks should be seen as part of the sets of three, right? Seven, then 62, then seven. But the point that he's bringing up, or 49 and then 62 and then seven, as far as years. But the point that he's recognizing is that the Messiah, the Messiah, the Prince's arrival on the scene is after the seven and 62. In other words, it's after the total 69 from the going forth of the decree, which allows for history to place this Messiah exactly where we see him show up. Again, the confirmation bias that I talked about earlier steps in and lets us know that history lines up with this prophecy. 
I know some people are going to complain and say, well, Daniel didn't know that Messiah was going to come exactly in the first century. Well, he may or may not have, depending on what the Spirit revealed to him. But what we do know for certain is that the Messiah did show up, and the New Testament records his arrival. And therefore, confirmation bias from both history as well as New Testament writings allows to now go back and look at Daniel's prophecy and realize that, oh, this was talking about the Messiah. It fits together. So it seems like, again, I know the, 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 the skeptics and the critics are going to say that we're reading this backwards. We should start with what Daniel thought, what the original Jews thought, and then see if the New Testament lines up with what they thought. And if it doesn't, then we're supposedly somehow to reject what history in the New Testament teaches us. That's the skeptic's perspective. We already know that that's the rabbinic model, right? Rabbinic Judaism, National Israel Today, reads Daniel, and then looks at history, rejects Jesus, and therefore looks at Daniel and says, aha, this is confirmation. The Messiah Prince who shows up isn't Jesus because he showed up too early. They have a, the, and the, 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 the punctuation gives it away from their perspective. And this is, shows that their bias is locked into the understanding that discounts the historical findings of Jesus showing up as well as, uh, as the apostolic scriptures confirming what history already revealed to us. So we don't want to go in that direction because that represents blindness. Likewise, Christian skeptics today and secular skeptics who read through the Bible and say, well, the original Hebrews wouldn't have believed that Jesus was the one showing up on the scene, nor would they have understood that this time frame was broken up the way that we do in our modern versions with the commas and the colons and semicolons. They say, well, again, this, there's no way that this must be Jesus. It doesn't have to be Jesus. I reject that perspective again because history as well as the apostolic scriptures, which of course is the final authority, apostolic scriptures, the, the, the New Testament itself, that's the final authority, but history also agrees with the New Testament in this case. Okay, so let's read this here. Guzik says, from the going forth of the command to restore and build, and restore and build Jerusalem. By the way, notice it's restore and build. We could say the restoration took place as early as when Cyrus was given the command in Isaiah 44 and 45. God prophesied that Cyrus, 200 years before Cyrus was even born, God prophesied that Cyrus would be the one to break the exile. And so thus in 538 BC, Cyrus was the one that triggered the end of the 70-year exile and to allow the people to... You know, he broke Babylon's yoke, King Nebuchadnezzar's yoke, and allowed the people to begin to have a freedom with a view towards going back to the land and rebuilding their temple. And so in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, very briefly, I'm not going to turn to them here, Isaiah records that God promises and prophesies in advance that Cyrus was his anointed, his chosen, to bring about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, and yet... Historically, Cyrus only gave a decree to restore the temple, meaning the restoration and rebuilding of the temple took place actually prior to the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem. But nevertheless, Cyrus kind of got the ball rolling with allowing the children of Israel to be set free and to begin to have a view towards going back to the land. So he's an important figure in the whole story. But when we talk about the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we don't see that actually happening until Artaxerxes hits the scene, and the and that's around the 557 mark, or uh, something that like like what uh, Brother Alan Parr mentioned, 
not the 440, but the, let me show it to you. This one, the, the four, I'm sorry, not 557, the 457 mark. And so by that time, Artaxerxes has an, a decree issued to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, but only the temple is written in the decree. But why, by the time we get to the 444s, then the city and the temple are in view, and it perhaps isn't listed in the decree that we see in the in the Bible, but definitely the letter that Jerem that Nehemiah carried has that permission there. He has that understanding. So that's why I said it's, it's either 457 or 444, 457 or 44 or of. Let's try that one again. I said 457. Um, it's either 457 or 444, somewhere around those. It's one of those two. So, but key germane to our study here is that uh, Guzik reminds us that Gabriel revealed to Daniel the starting point for the 70 weeks prophecy. There was a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The language about Jerusalem in there is the part that triggers most Bible commentators to choose the 444, the last decree that's ever been recorded that Artaxerxes ever issued. After that, there's no more historical decrees that we are aware of. Therefore, this is the this is the earliest date. I'm sorry, this is the latest date it could be. After this, there's nothing else. So it could be as early as, as Cyrus, but as late as Artaxerxes. And that's why most people pick Artaxerxes, because the language about restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem, right, not just the temple. Uh, Guzik's going to bear this out. The Bible presents four possible decrees that might fulfill this description. Cyrus made a decree giving Ezra and the Babylonian captives the right to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in 538 B.C., whether we can read about in Ezra, that's one. Darius made a decree giving Ezra the right to rebuild the temple in 517. We can read about that in Ezra, that's two. Artaxerxes made a decree giving Ezra permission to save passage and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in 458. That's also recorded in Ezra, so there is a decree there. And then the fourth one, Artaxerxes made a decree giving Nehemiah permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls in 445. And that's recorded for us in Nehemiah. And Guzik reminds us that only the last of these four decrees was a command to restore and build Jerusalem. The first three each focused on the temple, not on the street or on the wall. And I, again, I might add, if we look at the very first one that Cyrus talked about that's recorded for us in the book of... Ezra, this one right here, it is true that from a biblical record in the book of Ezra, we only have the temple being the primary uh, one that's, that should be in view to, to be recorded. Uh, Cyrus made a decree giving Ezra and the Babylonian captives the right to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Notice, return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but not rebuild and restore Jerusalem and the temple. It's a subtle difference, but it causes some Bible students to say, well, based on the Isaiah passages in Isaiah 44 and 45, where God talks about Cyrus being his anointed who will rebuild Jerusalem and, and the temple, then this is the date that we should choose. But again, I think based on the lack of complete evidence or total detailing about both Jerusalem and the temple, I think this is part of the picture, but it's not the decree that we should be looking for. I vote again for either one of the last two, either the 458 date or the 445 date. And again, there's only a difference between 12 or so years, 12, 11 years, depending on how you count the years there. Not a huge deal. So, point B under from Pastor Guzik. 
Unto Messiah, the prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Again, this is a big issue when it comes to, is Jesus this Messiah spoken out about in verse 25? Or is it a different person such as maybe Ezra or Cyrus or Nehemiah, right? These are different candidates that show up in the different translations or different perspectives. Again, rabbinic perspective is obviously this is not Jesus in verse 25 of Daniel, this Messiah figure that shows up after seven weeks or after 49 years. From their perspective is either Cyrus that's spoken about in Isaiah 44 and 45, or it is Ezra himself or uh, some other king or something like that. So, But they're definitely not going to say it's Jesus for two counts. One, they reject Jesus as Messiah for Messianic reasons. And two, they say, well, Daniel's prophecy says that this Messiah will show up after seven, seven sevens or 49 years. So that's much too early to fit the bill for Jesus. But Guzik reminds us that, no, the punctuation can allow for the 60 the seven weeks and the 62 weeks to show us 483. So he says, Gabriel's message to Daniel was simple and striking. 483 years, that is 69 units of seven years, would pass from the time of the command recorded in Nehemiah 2 unto the appearance of Messiah the Prince. And again, this is extremely important theology if you're a Christian. Are you going to take Jesus out of the prophecy or are you going to put him back in the prophecy? We already know historically when Jesus showed up, and we know from the New Testament writings that he is the Messiah. So therefore, the biblical version of confirmation bias, which is good to practice, remember we talked about that earlier in my study, go back and listen to the earlier parts of this study, confirmation bias from a biblical perspective allows us to see that Daniel was prophesying about this Jesus. Or if we say that it's a different figure other than Jesus, then we just all we're doing is simply saying that there's a, a type of messianic person who shows up earlier but that the messiah that shows up in verse 26 that we're going to read about here in a moment the one who's cut off he is definitely jesus no mistake pastor guzik's point number i or point number one under this uh topic right now some say the 483 483 years were completed at the time of jesus birth 504 bc there's little chronological support for this date point number two some say the uh, uh this is Roman numeral two. Some say the 483 years were completed at his baptism at the beginning of Jesus' ministry if dated AD 26. This is possible if one begins with the earlier decree of Artaxerxes, like Brother Alan Parr did in the 530s, and I'm sorry, in the 557, and figures with our present measurement for years, 365 days to a year, instead of the ancient measurement of 360 days to a year. Again, there's a significant author that we'll read about here in a moment. That did a bunch of the calculations and then another significant uh, christian author who followed up an historian that followed up and kind of fine-tuned the earlier gentleman's calculations and we see that they both still work out to around the same time frame uh point number roman number three some say that 483 years were completed at the triumphal entry of jesus if dated a.d 32 the first significant gentleman I was mentioned, his name was Sir Robert Anderson. Significant work, the common prince, followed this argument in great detail. And let's see, it might mention the other gentleman. A bullet point under that uh, Roman numeral, Anderson using a 360-day year, which Israel used in Daniel's day, calculated 173,880 days from the decree to the triumphal entry, fulfilling the prophecy to the day. And Walver notes, it's customary for the Jews to have 12 months of 360 days each and then insert a 13th month occasionally when necessary to correct the calendar, which we also recognize. 
Another bullet point, the year AD 32, based on Luke 3.1, for Jesus' death is controversial. Most chronologists favor AD 30 or 33, but recent attempts have made some case for the date. And then we have another quote from Wood. A recent article attempts to give credence to the date of AD 32, uh, and that's from a book that's referenced or a journal that's referenced. The evidence presented is uh, worthy of notice. And then a final bullet point, no one today is able to dogmatically to declare, no one, no one today is able dogmatically to declare that Sir Robert Anderson's computations are impossible. That's Walver, the classic uh, eschatological, eschatology teacher, end times teacher. And then now we have Roman numeral four. Some say the 483 years were completed at the exact time of the crucifixion. This is a minority opinion. Most who find the date near this time also see it belonging to the triumphal entry, which happened seven days before the crucifixion. Point number C, Pastor David Guzik. We're still looking at verse number 26 in Daniel 9. Until Messiah the Prince, taking Anderson's calculations as reliable, we see a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. A Gentile king made a decree, and 483 years later to the day, Jesus presented himself as Messiah, the prince, to Israel. Point number one, Roman number one. In our mind, a prince is a good step lower than a king. In the Hebrew vocabulary, prince has more the idea of strong, mighty ruler than son of a king and heir to the throne. So the word prince there doesn't necessarily have to mean royalty in this passage. It could be, but and with Yeshua, there is a heavenly royalty, right? He's the son of God himself. And since God's the great king, this would make us Messiah, son of God, and uh, prince. Of course, we also know that Jesus is the prince of peace. But the point being brought up is that the word prince doesn't always have to connote royalty. It's simply idea of strong or mighty ruler. Point number two here, Roman numeral two. There was only one occasion, this is a quote from Newell, there's only one occasion in our Lord's earthly ministry in which he is depicted as presenting himself openly as Zion's king, the so-called triumphal entry, which is the ending point of the 483 years, if I'm mad. So it's recorded for us in each one of the Gospels, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 and Psalm 118. Another quote, on that day, Jesus deliberately arranged the event to present himself as Messiah. That's Guzik's remark there, according to the book of Mark. Guzik also notes that on that day, Jesus welcomed praise instead of quieting it. And on that day, the triumphal entry, Jesus made special reference to the importance of that day per the book of Luke. And then Roman number three, this prophecy is so specifically fulfilled that it has been a significant testimony to many and then we have a quote from Trapp. Others of the Jewish scholars, by the evidence of these words, had been compelled to confess that Messiah has already come, and that he was that Jesus, and that he was that Jesus whom their forefathers crucified, based on this prophecy, which is fantastic. Point D under Pastor David Guzik's commentary that we're working from here. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. This indicates, Guzik says, that the rebuilding of the streets and wall of Jerusalem would happen the first seven weeks mentioned, then would follow another 62 week of years, weeks of years until the coming of Messiah, the Prince. So Daniel's breakdown, even without our fancy punctuation, really still gives us an understanding that's consistent and harmonizes with the classic traditional understanding of the passage that Jesus shows up after the 483 years. Guzik's 
point, Roman number one, the 70 weeks are divided into three parts, and then he's got a few bullet points. We've got seven weeks of 49 years until the city and its walls are rebuilt. Then we've got 69 weeks, which is 7 plus 62, which equals 483 years from the decree until Messiah the Prince appears. And then we've got the third unit of a final 70th week to complete the prophecy. This breakdown is very important, and where we put the Messiah in the breakdown is extremely important for us as Christians. So, when, again, you're going to read these commentaries online, watch YouTube videos, and they're going to say, well, Daniel probably said, and according to the way the Hebrew breaks down, and according to the punctuation of the Hebrew, and it's best to understand that after the seven weeks, the Messiah shows up, etc., etc., I'm here to tell you that, number one, the original Hebrew had no punctuation other than what the Masoretes inserted using dots and dashes after the fact and or the way consonants worked against certain nouns, vowels, uh, I'm sorry, consonants against certain other nouns, and there's possibly a break, but either way, we're still talking about the Messiah showing up after 430 years, which both history confirms as well as the New Covenant. So, get your confirmation bias in order there. Point number four, starting with verse number 26, we're in David Guzik's commentary, reading through our own notes here for this particular study. Point number four, which starts with verse 26, what happens after the first 69 weeks? And again, even if verse 25 is ambiguous with a Messiah figure showing up too early, like the Jewish model says, there's no ambiguity here in verse 26 because it says, Daniel records, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Well, this means that if Judaism is correct, there's a, that there's a prior Messiah who shows up after the first unit of the 49 years, this second person here in verse 26 is definitely a different Messiah because no one lived to be 483 years long back in those days, right? Because it definitely says after the 62 weeks, this Messiah will be cut off. So you understanding my time frame? If he showed up after the 49 years and then another 462 years later, he gets cut off. And the word cut off there in Hebrew refers to execution or some type of physical death, usually, well then, this Messiah lived much too long, right? What human person lived that long? So, even if Judaism is right, which I think they're not, that this Messiah shows up after the, only the seven years, seven first seven units, 49 years, then how do they make sense of this other Messiah? They, they have to bring in two different Messiahs, which I know what they do. They, they say, according to Rashi, they say, well, the first one was Nehemiah or Ezra or somebody like that or Cyrus. And the second Messiah, I mean, from their perspective, it's just an anointed one. It's not Christ. The second Messiah, the anointed person, the, is just King Agrippa or Herod or Nero or some other ruler that lived in the first century. So that's what they say. They still say it's not Jesus. So, but what does Guzik say? Let's read David's. Uh, let's read Daniel's prophecy first. After the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. And I think what I want to do, since we're right at about the hour-long break for this particular study. And we've we only made it through one verse, right? There's four verses in question. Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, and 27. We did verse 24 last week, and we just looked at verse 25 this week. Let's stop right here. 
We're, and this would be poised for verse 26 next week. I thought we were going to finish this, but there's just much more material that I don't want to rush through it and, and lose you in the discussion. So this will be the end of our study for tonight. We'll pick this up next week right here at point number four with the verse number 24 from David, Pastor David Guzik's commentary to Daniel chapter 9. But that'll do it for Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to tetzetor.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetzator Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tetzetorah.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of uh, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet this is the mechanism right here click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link 
to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you who just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well too. I mean, uh, God uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariman Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes to begin to look at a brand new verse that Biblical Unitarianism says is definitely not about the Trinity. You've got on your screen right now, biblicalunitarianism.com's website, a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. They do not hold a Trinitarian perspective. They believe that God is the numerically single God, that He's the only personal God. He's not tripersonal, He's unipersonal. There's one God, one being known as God, and there's only one person of God. And therefore, Jesus is the human agent sent by God into the world to save us from our sins, yes, and to be glorified and resurrected and sitting at the right hand of the Father, yes. However, he's just a man. He has been glorified and deified, and therefore we should worship him as God in that limited capacity, but only in the sense that he's not the one true God, only he's he really is a kind of a lesser deity in the mind of the biblical Unitarianism. Or he's a deified man, he's a human, he's a glorified human being. And for them, the Holy Spirit is merely either the another way of describing God, so it's just another description of God, or a, the Holy Spirit is a gift that's given of God to humans in the sense of kind of an empowering or a, what we might call an anointing, but it's not the Spirit in the third person sense like the third person of the Trinity. So, we've already looked at a few different verses tonight. We're going to deal with a brand new verse, Psalm 45, 6, which reads, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And when I click on their commentary for that particular verse, they simply show, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom, according to the NIV. And... This verse is quoted in Hebrews 1.8, and our explanation can be found there. And so, they give a point, point reference to the book of Hebrews, which we're going to have to turn to to get the explanation of this psalm, which is quoted in the book of Hebrews. So, let's turn there. Let's, let's read their explanation first, to be fair, that we understand what their position is, and then we'll supply an understanding. This is easily going to go into two or maybe three weeks because their explanation is a bit longer, and it'll probably take me this week just to read their explanation alone. So, uh, just get ready to sit back and listen. I'm going to do a bunch of reading first, and then I'll do some explaining. So, Book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 8, which is quoting the book of Psalm that we just read. Hebrews 1, 8, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Let me jump back over to the psalm real quick. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. This is NIV. Okay. Let's begin to read their explanation. 
both from the immediate context and with the presence of translation problems, there are quite a few reasons why we, this is biblical Unitarianism, why we do not believe that this verse is not, why we do not believe that this verse is not calling Jesus God, nor should be translated, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I think they did a double negative. Why we do not believe, why we do believe that this verse is not calling Jesus God, or why we do not believe that this verse is calling Jesus God. Yeah, they've got, unless I'm seeing it wrong, they've got a clever typo where they added a double negative. We do not believe that this verse is not calling, which a double negative cancels itself out, so it means it's a positive, which means they do believe that the verse is calling Jesus God. I believe they don't hold that position. So unless I'm reading it wrong, we a few reasons why we do not believe that this verse is not calling Jesus God. Yeah, I think it's a typo. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're watching this YouTube video or reading or listening to this commentary, this um, uh, podcast, tell me if I'm misunderstanding what they're trying to say there. The bottom line is, I already know their position. They do not believe that the verse is calling Jesus God. They do not believe that Jesus is God veiled in flesh. Therefore, they do not believe the verse is calling Jesus God, and they believe that the they do not believe that the that Jesus is called God. So, despite whatever typo, I already know what they believe. All right, so let's read their answer. Number point number one: first evidence that the psalm is speaking of a human king in Psalm forty-five seven, which says, "Quote: You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of exaltation above your peers." That the text calls God your God, i.e. the king's God, shows that the king is inferior to God. God, quote-unquote, does not have a God, and both in capital G. It wouldn't, and that's their explanation, right? Notice their logic. God does not have a God. We talked about, oh, probably several weeks ago, how that their logic approaches the biblical text from a skeptic perspective, this skeptic being too closely aligned with the classic atheistic perspective where if the Bible was true according to the Trinitarian perspective, then certain details would be demonstrated by the text. Like the language would read this way, if if C were true, then A and B said A and B would also be true. Or so their premise is constructed, their their syllogism is constructed in such a way that if A is true and B is true, then C must be present, which we already talked about how that Biblical Unitarians, without realizing it, argue like an atheist. It's the classic atheist to say, well, if God is true, if God is real, if God exists, then how come I don't see certain things existing in the world? Or how come there's so much suffering? And how come this and how come that? We also know that rabbinic Judaism, which takes the non-Messianic perspective when it comes to reading the Bible, right? They, they reject Jesus. They also like to argue, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, then how come there's no peace in the world? How come there's no universal application of Torah like the, the Messiah has promised to bring? How come Israel isn't ruling from, uh, from the world, ruling the nation? like the Messiah said to bring about how come how come this how come that how come XYZ isn't present if Jesus is the Christ it's the same skeptics mindset and biblical Unitarianism falls for this over and over without them realizing if Jesus is truly God then how come we don't see the verse read this way guess what biblical Unitarianism you can hear the sarcasm in my voice guess what you don't get to dictate how God describes himself in his word Neither do we Trinitarians, by the way, okay? The Unitarians and the Biblical Trinitarians, neither one of us were consulted when God wrote His Word. 
He wrote what he wrote. He decided to describe himself the way he describes himself. And so we have to take what he gives and ascertain from there what is truth. We don't get to say, well, if it's true that God truly is Trinity and that Jesus truly is God, that this must be true and that must be true. That simply is not allowable from the biblical perspective. So stop doing that. You know, God does not have a God. Well, if you're using conventional logic and wisdom and you're limiting your understanding of the word God there, then yes, it's true. God doesn't have a God. And notice I say it would make no sense to be calling the king God here as the clear biblical teaching is that there is one God. We looked at this one God in our Deuteronomy look last week or last, yeah, just last week and the last weeks earlier. So if Jesus, so if Jesus is the one true God, how could he have a God? Okay, let me tip my hand to you right up front, because I know that some of you are not going to make it through the entire study. You're going to drop out a live study early, or you're going to turn off the YouTube channel at this point in time and go somewhere else, or you're going to turn off the, the podcast. And I realize that there are people out there who can't, who don't have the time or effort or interest to follow the entire study. Let me tip my hand to you right up front, and hopefully pique your interest into staying and listening to the entire study. Their last sentence, so if Jesus is the one true God, how could he have a God? Let me answer for you right up front. The the way that Jesus can have a God if he is God is because Jesus is both God and man. As God, the Son of God has God the Father as his Father. There's one being and three persons. So the one being, God the Father recognizes the one being god the son and the one being god the holy spirit the one being is equal in the three persons in the sense that there's one god god the father god the son god the holy spirit one being god and yet god the father the person recognizes the person of the son and they both recognize the person of the holy spirit who recognizes both the person of the father and the son so each of the persons recognizes one another but here's where the incarnation provides the most understanding of god himself and this was designed by god right up front right from the very beginning god knew that the son of god who is the third uh, who's the second person of the godhead one being and yet the second person God knew that he would take on humanity. And so in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, the man, has a God as his God. Are you understanding that? Jesus is not just God. He's also man. He's truly God and truly man. We Trinitarians affirm that Jesus is the eternal word of God who became a man and took on humanity, right? He dwelt among us. Read John 1, 1 all over again. So Jesus is truly God in the essence sense, in the being sense, and yet he's truly man in the human sense. And in his humanity, he definitely absolutely has a God, just like I do. I'm truly human. Yeah, Imagine that. Yeah, shocker, right? Shock, uh, you know, scandal of scandals. Ariel's truly human. Just joking with you, right? Yeah, I'm truly human. I'm not a metahuman. I'm not a superhuman. I'm not from another planet like Superman. I'm not an X-Man mutant or anything like that, right? None of the comic book stuff going on here. I'm truly human, just like Jesus was truly human, which means, just like Jesus, I have a God. 
And last time I checked, anyone listening to this podcast and watching this YouTube video, they also have a God. If you're truly human, then you also have a God. There's a God above you. There is a God that you recognize is God. You should recognize is God. There's a true God. The being known as God is above us as humans. So Jesus as a human has a God. And yet, Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is fully God in the essence sense so he has a his dual nature right the, he has a human nature and he has a divine nature and that's what solves the question that biblical unitarianism is trying to object to how can jesus have a god if he's true god well the mystery is that in incarnation he's truly god and truly man the incarnation solves the problem if jesus is the one true god which he is that's in his essence in his nature in his divine nature how could he have a god easy He's a human being, which is very ironic. It's ironic to biblical Unitarianism because they affirm that Jesus is a true human. So, duh, answer your own question. Use your own theology, biblical Unitarianism. You guys say that Jesus is just a human anyway. Doesn't Jesus, a human, have a God? Then how can you ask at the end of your first paragraph, so if Jesus is the one true God, how could he have a God? Okay, I think what they're trying to say is that the human is not God. So, if Jesus is the one true God as a human, how could he have a God? Again, they reject the Incarnation, but the answer is that the Bible provides for us the truth of the Incarnation. All right, those of you with me in the live class, sorry for standing on the soapbox and, and preaching for a little bit. All right, let's look at paragraph number two, Biblical Unitarianism. The context of both Hebrews 1 and Psalm 45 makes it clear that this king being referred to as not the Supreme God because this king has been blessed by God, has a wife, and simply put, he is a human king. I realize the antecedent type that's being given for us. In other words, I recognize that the Psalms have a dual feature, what we might call near, far, or type and shadow, where the prophetic anointed king written about in the Psalms is the type, or I'm sorry, is the shadow of the type who is to come, which is Messiah. So, using typewriter analogy, when you strike the key on a physical typewriter, the old-fashioned typewriter, not a word processor like your Microsoft Word or computer, but an old-fashioned typewriter where there's a ribbon and a key, and it's a mechanical typewriter, if you strike the key, the key hits the paper, but between the paper and the, and the key, there is the ribbon, which means that the true physical part of the typewriter is the key being struck and the little arm that rises up and hits the ribbon and the paper. But what the result is, is that there is a shadow that's left behind, which we see in the print, right? The caused by the ink being caught between the type and the paper. So when we talk about type and shadow, Jesus is the type. He's that physical key that's being struck by your finger and moving up uh, by the arm. And then the shadow is what the result, what results from the ribbon being caught between the type and the paper. So the shadow is what's the result. It's the ink that gets stamped onto the paper, the stamp itself. Or we use a different analogy when we say type and shadow. If you're not familiar with an old typewriter, just use a, a rubber stamp. You got the ink and you got the stamp. And so in that analogy, when we say type and shadow, Jesus is the stamp itself. And the shadow is the ink, the rubber stamper, or the image that's left behind when we place the stamp into the ink and then uh, stamp it onto the paper. What's left is the image there, the shadow, the printing, 
that as a result. You can use a third analogy of just a simple pen and a piece of paper. Type and shadow. Jesus is the pen, and when you put the pen down to paper and start writing, the shadow is that which left behind when the pen starts scrolling across the paper. The ink itself that's being drawn on the paper, that's the shadow. So, using our analogy of type and shadow, in the Old Testament, we had shadows of kings and anointed rulers, prophets, priests, etc. But they were all shadows, even the, the animals sacrificed themselves, the animals. They were all shadows of the type to come, the type being Jesus. Type and shadow. So, biblical Unitarianism is going to school us now on the shadow and explain to us somehow that the book of Psalms is only referring to the shadow as if there were no type that it was pointing to. It sometimes makes me wonder, Biblical Unitarianism, do you guys even believe in the New Testament scriptures at all? Right? Wow. Okay. So, they say, we also know this passage in Psalm 45 is not originally about Jesus because the king has a wife. In other words, Jesus doesn't have a wife. The queen is said to be a woman of foreign descent, possibly from Tyre, who was told to forget her own people and father's house. And she has she and her husband have an ivory house. Those facts have led some commentators to suggest that this psalm is referring to the marriage of the Phoenician princess Jezebel to King Ahab, who had an ivory palace. But that is untenable, since Ahab does not fit the characteristics of a godly king that are so prominent in the psalm. Solomon, they say, also married foreign women and lived in luxury is a much more likely candidate. Thus, the original quote in Psalm 45.6 is not actually referring to Jesus, but originally refers to an Old Testament king. Again, I get it. I get the type and shadow concept. And I even affirm the fact that, it, that the psalmist may or may not have been aware when he was writing whatever he wrote, that it really was pointing towards a Messiah. But that doesn't discount the fact, in other words, he may not have been aware of the, of the, of the type itself. He may have been writing with the, with the understanding that was completely shadow. I get that. I get that. And I affirm that in many cases that could be true, but it doesn't discount the fact that God did, in fact, use certain Psalms to give the fuller picture of Type into of shadow into type using certain shadows which were already present. God decided to use the feature of either A, uh, what we call progressive revelation, and or B, uh, type and shadow, and or C, mystery. Right where something was hidden to the biblical author, they weren't even aware that they were writing about Messiah because it was hidden from their perspective in the Old Testament times. All of those factors come into play. And here is the proof, people. Here's the death nail. Here's the nail in the coffin of the biblical Unitarian uh, perspective. The writer to the book of Hebrews is authoritative. Hello, the New Testament writings are authoritative. They have been proven to be authoritative by the the rest of the scriptures that have been accompanied that have accompanied them, as well as by the historical realities that uh, we have now before us. In other words, what took place in the first century that was written down later on by the Apostolic Scriptures. So both history as well as the writings affirm the truths that we as Trinitarians affirm today. In other words, if you're going to say that the writer to the Hebrews is saying that Jesus is God in these passages, and yet if you're going to say that Jesus isn't God in these passages, then what you're really saying is that the writer to the book of Hebrews either A, lied, or B, was 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 uh, patently in error. In other words, you're undercutting the authority of the writer to the book of Hebrews. You are 
uh, what's the word I'm saying? You are, um, you're really undercutting the authority of the New Testament as a whole, is what you're saying. You're, you're questioning, you're calling into question the biblical authority of not just the New Testament, but the writer to the book of Hebrews, when you take the biblical Unitarian perspective, which again, draws me back over and over again to the same question that I have for the biblical Unitarian crowd. How Christian are you? Do you really believe that Jesus is your Messiah? How can you reject so much of the New Testament and still hold to the fact that Jesus is the Christ? What part of your Bible is authoritative to you? Anyway, wow. Okay, let me get off my soapbox again. You can hear that I'm, I'm passionate about this topic of Trinitarianism. So, the original quote in Psalm 45 is not actually referring to Jesus, but originally refers to an Old Testament king, but also finds later application in Jesus. In what way, right? If the verse is calling the king God, then that would make both Solomon and Jesus God, which is untenable, and there's no internal reason to apply Psalm 45, 6 to the Messiah without verse 7 applying to the same king. That would be eisegesis reading in the, into the verse to make it fit one's theology. If the psalm is calling the Messiah God, then the Davidic king is also God, right? I, their logic is faulty here, by the way. If 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 Psalm 45 is referring to Jesus as God, then the psalmist must have also been writing about the Davidic king or Solomon as God. No, no. Type and shadow is that's that would be like saying if Jesus is the one and truly Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? The sacrificial Lamb that we recognize in Passover, and we're right in the middle of Passover season. So listen to this. I'm going to borrow biblical Unitarianism's logic in this paragraph and use it in a different way to show you how illogical it is. You ready for it? According to them, if the psalmist was referring to Jesus as God, which the writer of Hebrews picks up on, and if that's true, that Jesus is the God that's referred to in the book of Psalms and the book of Hebrews, then backwards, working backwards in in application, according to biblical Unitarianism, if that's the case, then the Davidic king is God, and so is Solomon, the one true God, according to uh, biblical Unitarianism's assessment of Trinitarian logic. But watch this. Here's where the biblical Unitarianism group isn't getting it. Using that same logical objection that they just made, watch this. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I, I, I think they do, and most of my biblical Unitarianism brothers and sisters who dialogue with me, they have a sense of explaining that they are true Christians. So I have every reason to believe that what they're saying is true, that they do believe that Jesus is the one true Messiah. So if biblical Unitarianism recognizes that Jesus is the true sacrifice sent from God, Number one, premise one. And premise two, if they get this truth from the New Testament, which they must because it was a truth that was hidden in the Old Testament, following along with me, biblical Unitarianism, who claims that Jesus is their Messiah, must get that theology from the New Testament, not from the Old Testament per se, because a lot of that truth about how Jesus fits into the plan of God as the ultimate sacrifice was hidden in the Old Testament. It was hinted at. It was given in type and shadow. Uh, it was given in partial fulfillment, but it wasn't explicitly explained. There's a mystery to it. It's only until we get to Jesus' death on the cross and realizing that his death was the fullest payment that mankind could acquire for his sins. But if biblical Unitarianism agrees that Jesus is the final payment, the final sacrifice for sins, and they agree that this sacrifice is God's means of atonement, then using their same logic, that means the animals in the Old Testament are Jesus. Did you catch it? Right? According to their logic, where they object that the New Testament says that the 
figure in the book of Psalms must be God. And biblical Unitarianism says if this is true, working backwards from the New Testament, backwards to the Old Testament, that if the New Testament says that the figure in the book of Psalms is God, then that means that according to the Old Testament, it's the Davidic king who must be God. Using that same pattern of logic, if the new I'm speaking as if I'm biblical Unitarianism, if the New Testament definitely affirms that Jesus is the sacrifice that God accepted for our sins, then this means that the the animals in the Old Testament must have been Jesus. Hello, I don't hear biblical Unitarianism claiming that the animals were Jesus. They don't. They claim that they were animals, right? Goats and lambs and bulls and all those things. Those were those were animals. They weren't Jesus. Now the, the, the way to understand is that they're types and shadows. They are the shadows of Jesus. Jesus is the type. He's the reality. He's the fullness. They simply pointed towards him. They looked forward to his ultimate sacrifice. That's how we better understand the Bible. And I'm sure biblical Unitarianism affirms that example with the animals. So why can't they understand that same principle when it comes to the type and shadows of the figures here in the Old Testament as the Davidic kings, the anointed rulers being shadows of the type who is Jesus in the New Testament, right? They, they make a disconnect in their logical thought processes. I don't know why, but let's keep reading their answer. They say it's eisegesis to make it fit one's theology. If the psalm is calling the Messiah God, then the Davidic king is also God. Is also God. So if a Trinitarian is using, is using his verse to prove Jesus is God, it actually would prove too much and make Solomon God too. No and no. You guys aren't getting your theology right here. And I'm sorry to have to disappoint you on this, but uh, you need to think a little bit harder and a little bit smarter. Let's keep reading their answer. I, I can see from my timing here that I'm not going to get through all their answer tonight. We'll, get, we'll do as best we can. Likewise, they say under point number two, Hebrews 1 makes it clear that the King Jesus being referred to is not God because the entire passage is trying to argue that Jesus is greater than the angels. Okay, yes, it is true that the argument is trying to, in the book of Hebrews, is trying to argue that Jesus is greater than angels. But listen to their complete answer. If Jesus was God, notice, if Jesus was God, that's the skeptic's mindset. That's the atheist mindset. If God truly is God, if there is a God, Right? This is just like the rabbinic Jews. If Jesus truly is the Messiah, in other words, I've come to disdain this phrase, if Jesus was God, comma, right? I, I've come to disdain this, disdain this form of logic because it's, it, it's, it's the one that points your bony skeptic finger in God's face and says, if you truly are God, and starts from there, it starts from the skeptic. Why don't you start by saying, since you truly are God, not if you truly are God. So, biblical Unitarianism, stop using this skeptical atheist form or non-Messianic Jewish form of logic, questioning whether Jesus is God or questioning whether Messiah truly who he is. Why don't you read the New Testament and affirm it as authoritative and then say, since it is authoritative, then the verses that speak about Jesus being God must also be true, rather than questioning and saying, if Jesus it was God. It's like saying, if the New Testament truly is true, it leads me to, again, believe that you truly don't hold to a, an authoritative perspective on the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament writings, which it, it in itself is a dangerous position to hold as a Christian. Why are you going to call yourself a Christian and undermine and cut out from underneath your, yourself the authority of the New Testament? It's like climbing a tree and then cutting the tree out from underneath you. You're only going to bring harm to yourself. It's what people like Bart Ehrman do, right? They claim to be Christian for a while, and then they go 
go write copious amounts of books to prove that the New Testament is falsified and inaccurate and not trustable and reliable, and they eventually drop the label Christian altogether and just call themselves atheists. I think that's Bart Ehrman's journey. Anyway, likewise, Hebrews 1 makes it clear that the kingdom keep read the part. So they say, if Jesus was God, it would have been much simpler for the author to say that Jesus is God. Therefore, he is greater than the angels. Case closed. Again, they're, they're, they're putting forth what we call a false premise, or they're creating their logic using a premise of questioning, a premise of supposition that in their syllogism, we're using logic terms here, but in their syllogism, they're setting up almost like a straw man, right? When we say straw man logic or straw man theology, you have a debate between opponent A and opponent B, and the opponent opponent A can't attack opponent B's logic and theology because it's too strong. His argument is too strong, Point opponent B. So instead, what opponent A does is he creates a scarecrow version, a straw man version of opponent B's logic and theology. And instead of knocking down opponent A with his own reasoning, opponent uh, instead of knocking down opponent B with his reasoning, opponent A knocks down the straw man because it's made of straw, right? There's no substance to it. You can you can practically blow it over with a, with a strong breath. And so that's what we call straw man theology. A little, I'll put a little graphic on the screen to explain this. Biblical Unitarianism and so doing by saying, well, if Jesus was truly God, then the author to the writer of the Hebrews should have said that he's he, that Jesus is God, and therefore he's greater than the angels. Case closed. They're setting almost kind of, kind of a straw man type of answer, which is a form of illogical illogical reasoning when it comes to uh, formal debates. But they say instead the author goes to great lengths to try to show Jesus' superiority in other ways, such as that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that God calls him his son, and that the angels are to worship him. We're going to get to the book of Hebrews uh, and explain it from a Trinitarian perspective eventually, but let's keep reading down through Biblical Unitarian's answer. Um, do we want to read point number three? I'm going to read point number three, and then I'll draw this part to a close. We'll pick this up next week. Point number three. The king's... The king's God anointed him, setting him above his peers. This is evidence, they say, against the Trinitarian interpretation of the verse for a number of reasons. One is that God, so quote-unquote, does not have any peers to be set above, whereas the human king of Israel, including the Messiah, does have peers. Okay, I, I agree with their assessment there so far in a sense that God does not have any peers and that humans need to be either set above their peers or they can be below their peers. I agree with that logic so far. But they continue, the Messiah Jesus Christ did have peers because he was completely human and not a God-man as Trinitarian theology asserts. Okay, I disagree there. He was completely human, true, but he was not only human. He was God veiled in flesh. He was divinity incarnate. So he had a dual nature. So that's, of course, the stark difference between biblical trinitarianism and biblical unitarianism obviously they reject incarnation which is actually one of the primary keys to unlocking much of the discussions about on the issues of trinity right how can god be one yet three yet one well it's because of the incarnation they go on to say also psalm 45 7 says this king loved righteousness and hated wickedness and therefore god anointed him this makes perfect sense if the king is human but if this king is god he was really anointed because he loved righteousness their question it makes no sense that god needed to be anointed at all and so they are in closing they are saying that 
this psalm cannot be about Jesus as God, like the writer to the book of Hebrews claims in most translations. Logically, biblical Unitarianism says, logically, this cannot be the case because the author to the book of Psalms was writing about a human king, someone who must be anointed by God, and someone who must be exalted above his peers. And therefore, since God has no peers and doesn't need to be anointed or exalted or anything like that, then this could not be referring to someone who is a God next to God, i.e. a second person of the Godhead, the second person, the Son of God himself. So, we're going to see in time that the logical fallacies that biblical Unitarianism is committed are many that they are committing are many they are large they they argue from a position of of skepticism and atheism and many times rabbinic judaism they argue from all three of those perspectives perhaps unwittingly so i'm willing to work with them right i don't have a perfect explanation of the bible either i'm not trying to be too harsh on my biblical unitarian brothers i'm simply, simply trying to open your eyes to some of the weaknesses of your arguments to help you understand that if you're listening to teachers on the internet or reading books by some of these guys like bart ehrman and and uh anthony buzzard and and people like that people who are feeding you lies they I, I don't know if they themselves are aware of their own lies, but they're feeding you half-truths, right, wrapped in a wrapper of supposed truth. And, and so the biblical Unitarianism, who's unsuspecting, doesn't realize that, it, that the authority of the New Testament is being undermined before his very eyes. So it's not just the half-truths and half-lies and the illogical arguments, right, but it's also the and the, this is the more serious error, is the undermining of the New Testament's authority and and uh, uh, essentially cutting out the, the legs of the New Testament out from underneath it so that it doesn't have any any basis for informing us on the Old Testament passage. I'm sorry, but that that that's not acceptable from a biblical perspective, especially to, as I'm in closing, especially if you take into account not just the feature of um, type and shadow that's in the Old Testament and New Testament as they work uh, uh, in concert with one another, type and shadow, right? But also the idea of mystery is, is along that same uh, concept of type and shadow, that which was hidden in the Old Testament by God is revealed by the same God in the New Testament, and also partial fulfillment, total fulfillment from Old to New Testament. And then lastly, we have what's known as progressive revelation, which is the same idea as basically... Uh, mystery and re re revelation is the idea of God revealed His truths in in a in a way as, as as if you were unrolling a scroll or turning pages in a book. You only read one page at a time. You're not allowed to flip forward uh, to later chapters in the book without God's permission. So the progressive nature of God's revelation is that we got whatever God gave us in earlier times, and this gives us completely what God wants us to know at that time, and then further reveals later on in progressive fashion more and more detail as the scroll unrolled, and the, the first part that's unrolled is left open, and more and more is unrolled, and it's it's rolled up, but we as we unroll it, we can read more and more of the contents. So, uh, we, we wait for God to reveal more and more, and then what we have now in the authoritative canon of all 
uh, 66 books of the Bible is the fullness of what God has revealed to us, and that's it. Case canon closed. No more Bibles being written. No more chapters being added. No more Second Testaments like Joseph Smith wants to assert in his uh, Mormon theology, right? A New Testament by by the Book of Mormon and stuff. Right? That's all nonsense. Forget other angels showing up on the scene and revealing to you new revelations such as Joseph Smith with the angel or Muhammad with the angel uh, showing up in the cave and giving him the Quran. All of that is not necessary because we have an authoritative closed canon of the 66 books now. So if you want to understand God, you need to read all of the books together as a unit, right? Stop chopping off your, your logic and your theology like biblical Unitarianism does, reading only the Old Testament and then walking away thinking that you've got a total understanding. You do not. You must read the parts of the Apostolic Scriptures if you were to completely understand God. And we're going to go back to this over and over again as we affirm the truths of what the Bible teaches about this triune God. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for the Passover season, the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of Omer Rishit, the first fruits. And now we are at the time of this recording in the counting of the Omer, working our way towards the festival of Shavuot, Pentecost, which inextricably links Passover with Pentecost. The season of Passover is the season of being recognized that we are set free by the blood of Messiah. And the season of Pentecost is the recognition that we are filled with the Spirit of Messiah. So from Passover to Pentecost, it's all about the Messiah. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, Yeshua. And we worship you and we celebrate you for that fact. Continue to protect us, raise us up, strengthen us, and give us a hope beyond hope. Give us insight that is greater than our, than our training and help us, Lord, to walk these truths out. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Amen.